Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week I talk with farmers and growers, industry, the science community and policy makers to hear their news and views on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factum Agri, Professor Dr Adrian Macy of the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute at Victoria University joins me to discuss the relationship between agriculture and warming. He is with me now. Hello, Adrian. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Adrian, I'm keen to get your thoughts on the relationship with agriculture and warming in New Zealand. One of the most common refrains we hear in New Zealand is that agriculture is responsible for 60 plus percent of the historic warming in New Zealand and therefore has a responsibility to undo some of its previous warming. What do you think about the historical warming argument? Um, well, there's good facts around historical warming um, and there's a very recent study done for the um, beef and lamb uh, industry in New Zealand by Oxford University team, who are the world leaders on methane. So you can see the historical, uh, whole historical, the whole history effect of uh, New Zealand emissions there back to 1850. Mm-hmm. However, um, I don't, it's drawing a fairly long bow to say because of the prominence of methane in our emissions historically, that that now needs to be directly reflected in responsibilities today mm. on our current methane emitters because as we know with methane um, although the way the UN measures emissions uh, agriculture including methane comes out of about 50 percent of our emissions that measure is extremely inaccurate in terms of the long-term warming of methane which is what counts it is basically it overstates it by about four times also able to understate the short-term warming of methane. The second point is that if you're looking historically, um, none of those emissions from 1850 to about, well, at least 1990 are actually still warming. They are actually only last in the atmosphere a rather short time, 12, 15 years or so. So that's the difference with methane. It's A, it's warming is short-lived. B, if what we're trying to do is get New Zealand to stop warming the planet, to get to climate neutrality, Mm. for methane, you can actually, let's say you've got a herd of a thousand cows, so you've Mm. been emitting, um, let's say you've been emitting constant methane for the last 15, 20 years with your thousand cows. Um, Now, if you want to get to climate neutrality, which we define as not adding to global warming, ceasing adding to global warming. So what nothing that you're doing is actually increasing the global temperature. What you do with your thousand cows, you would reduce your emissions by about 0.3% per year. And that gets you to climate neutrality. The big difference between methane emissions and CO2 emissions. I could also include nitrous oxide emissions in the in the CO2. They're long-term gas as well. Mm. Uh, until you actually stop, that means zero, get to zero uh, emissions of CO2, you are still adding to warming. Mm. The equivalent in terms of climate neutrality between 
methane and CO2 is methane minus 0.3% a year, CO2 zero. That's the, that's the equivalent of climate neutrality. Now, if you reduce methane below uh, the 0.3%, you are actually tending to, you'll, you'll be reducing global temperatures compared with what they're trending towards. So um, most countries, this, this uh, target of um, 50% reduction, sorry, 100% reduction by 2050, zero, net zero by 2050, that for most countries who've got that target means that they will get to climate neutrality by 2050, let's say at 2050. And at that point, they will have had to stop um, emitting CO2, or if they are emitting it, they'll have to offset it, capture it some way. Mm. Uh, and it looks that for New Zealand, for our current targets, we um, we would probably get to climate uh, net neutrality for the country, if, we, if our current targets are, are all met, uh, somewhat before 2050. So that's that perspective. And one other point I'd make about historical responsibility, um, it's this particular argument that's being used um, re-methane is peculiar to New Zealand. I'm not aware of any other country um, that is trying to calculate a historical responsibility for methane. So that's, in a nutshell, mm. I'd say that's, um, that's where. I'd just say that it's not, um, there's a common misconception that if we um, measure methane's warming accurately, we somehow give farmers a complete free ride and then they say, okay, well, all we have to do is reduce by 0.3% a year. That's us. Okay, done. No, no more responsibility, please. That's actually not true in the policy sense because we could we could say, well, I think you can, you know, you can make, you're able to make a, a, an additional contribution by, you know, reducing another, reducing your methane by well below that 0.3% per year. Then you mm. might have a conversation about, okay, well, at what point do, if we, if you ask us to do that, um, at what point uh, does it do we get rewarded for it? How much of that should be our responsibility, and how much, when we get below a certain point, should we then be uh, effectively incentivised and rewarded to do it? So a lot of lot of mm. policy issues there. But I think the the key thing for my mind is that at the moment, um, the the way the UN measures this stuff and the way that New Zealand policy has been constructed up until now, uh, we haven't taken adequate account of that difference in a short lived and long-lived gas with one uh, with one exception however and that is our split gas target under our current um, zero carbon act where we mm. have co2 goes to zero and methane you've got you've got ranges there um they, they, you've got 10 for 2030 but then a range that hasn't yet been decided where we'd sit on that range uh up to 2050 so that that reflects the the science the conversation is still to be had uh, I think about um, the, this question of responsibilities and incentives, et cetera. So I think that's about the best I can do in a nutshell for all this stuff. But um, it's been quite difficult in New Zealand to get a, a sensible conversation going around the accurate measurement of methane's warming. A lot of resistance from uh, what I'd call the climate bubble, um, mm. which is most of those giving official advice to, to the government. So, but I think there's been what's been quite encouraging, I think, is from the industry, from the um, farming sector, um, has been two things. One, they've got themselves really clued up on all this, so they they really get the issue of warming. But two, if you take out um, groundswell, they're not asking for a free ride at all. They accept that 
we can't just say, okay, we'll do that. We'll do the zero point three percent per year reduction, and um, and that's all we should have to do. No one much is no one much is um is is saying that is creating no additional warming from the twenty twenties a fair aspiration for a country to have and. How would that compare to other countries' impacts on warming? Well, nobody's going to get to zero from the 2020s. That's not uh, nobody's going. To, I mean, that, you're you're well, you're talking about the methane as a sector, but I mean, mm-hmm. what what New Zealand is accountable to the world for is is New Zealand. Um, it's up to us what we do, how we construct it all. Um, I think um, it's certainly you know, it's it's a it's a point that should be discussed. I mean, if you want, as again, if you want people to go below that the point of climate neutrality then you know you're asking in terms of the in terms of the warming which is what matters you are doing a hell of a lot more than the co2 emitter who is still adding to warming so that creates the scope for a conversation about responsibilities i don't think there's anything you can conclude mm. that should or should not be done what i would say i think it's a uh, i see countries main responsibility uh, under the paris agreement to transition their own economies to net zero. So um, what I would say, it seems to me highly relevant how quickly you get to climate neutrality. Um, of course, you can then say, oh, well, the rich countries, they need to do, they, they, that's not enough, they need to do more. Well, that's true. The rich countries do need to do more. Um, they're certainly taking required to take the lead on having economy-wide uh, absolute reduction targets, which... Uh, most of the um, developed world has, um, and also there's a number, well, many other ways in which they are responsible to the developing countries for effectively assisting them with both emissions reduction, adaptation, technology. You've got this new um, loss and damage fund that's being set up, and what's really important in the Paris Agreement, you have a recognition in terms of responsibilities of, of, of rich countries, recognition of the importance of climate adaptation, whereas mm. previously the agreements were really totally focused on mitigation. But the three principles now co-equal. We've got the mitigation one, which is the, you know, the, the, the big deal, reducing emissions, adaptation, and then finance. And both those, adaptation and finance, are effectively uh, part where you have responsibilities from the, the richer world to assist the, the, the less or the, the most vulnerable and the and the poorer countries. So mm. it's not a simple, no, it's not a, there are no sort of simple answers to burden sharing, et cetera, and fair share. Um, although New Zealand, is, New Zealand has got a very peculiar um, international target under our NDC or nationally determined contribution, which makes us unique in the world. And I'm mm. not sure many people realise that. We have split gas targets, which you've touched on. Firstly, are they fully connected up? And secondly, we don't report on warming and the 24 to 47% reduction for methane, which is based on GWP 100. What would an integrated response look like, do you think? Well, it's, it's I think, it, well, the analysis can be done easily. Um, you you actually, um, you don't need to use, we, we, there's a metric that gives you the methane warming very accurately, which has been developed by the Oxford team and us called GWP STAR, but actually you don't even need to use it. You can actually just measure directly using atmospheric physics, measure the warming. I, and the problem is what at the moment you have, um, because we, we have to account to the uh, UN, using a measure that's inaccurate, you've got a disconnect between emissions and warming so that 
because it's all bulked up as CO2 equivalent and wrongly uh, measured, you can't know when a country says, oh, we've got a target of uh, minus 20% by you know, 2035. You can't actually tell unless they split the gases out. You can't mm. actually tell what the effect that, that is on uh, on warming. So, um, at, well, at the moment, I think there's, there's not... Um, there's got to be some the new government's going to have to look at the the methane target certainly for the, the 2050 uh, methane target which the way that the uh, recommendation from the commission went through was an inaccurate reflection of the role of those ranges in the ipcc the mm. ipcc made some global pathways but they said in the same sentence these are not to be applied. These cannot be applied to individual countries because individual countries vary hugely in terms of um, mitigation potential. So at the moment we've got a we've got the we've got the split gas target, which I'm quite sure will remain with the new government. But it, but in, for domestically that's fine. Internationally we're still accounting under the GWP 100 system. They've just got one number. So our our international target, uh, which we said for 2030, is 50% reduction by 2030, counted as, um, as CO2 equivalent under, under GWP 100. Mm. I think it, it's what's also become apparent through the greater understanding of methane is that, you know, obviously the, a very attractive way you'd think of integrating all this or shove it all into, the, shove all the gases into the ETS. And the original design of our ETS, it was the world's first, all sectors, all gases, uh, emissions trading scheme. But there's a big problem. Um, it's related to the different characteristics of the gases. If you if you try and stick methane into an ETS, um, that's not, it's difficult to make it work. And if you do want to use a, a trading system for methane, you're probably better to do it separately um because it's it's very misleading um what's what's really bad in terms of the objective of reducing warming if you um decide that because methane counts as 28 times co2 oh i'm going to re reduce a, a few tons of methane and i'll get mm. credit effectively for 28 times that number of tons of co2 but the fact is that those long term those those that methane will have dissipated anyway so you ended up um more CO2 than otherwise would have would have uh, been emitted, and and the real one one thing that does come through from the science is it's always a good idea to reduce methane, but it's not a good idea to reduce methane as an alternative to reducing CO2. What what determines final global temperatures is, is largely the CO2, and another factor with methane is that you can do you can get the same effect um, by doing methane reductions later. So if you wanted to, if you felt the new technologies coming on board, um, you still get that 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 hit you can get to to warming through reducing methane. So, no, it's um the it's actually not it's not the you know it's not rocket science, the physics behind it, but it's it's some of it's quite counterintuitive. Mm. Um, and you'll see, for example, you know, in Greenpeace Greenpeace campaigns against livestock farming, they'll quote you Methane is 85 times more polluting than CO2. Well, that's true, but it's only a very temporary effect in the first you know, 15, 20 years or so. So, um, yeah, that's. I think sometimes the the debate gets obscured by people's prior convictions about what they think should happen. Mm. And and one way of clearing the ground is having a, I think, a rigorous focus on warming with the understanding that no one, you know, no one's going to get a free ride out of it. 
but that's, it'll be a much more healthy discussion if it could be put on that basis, in my view, anyway. And mm. um, obviously, the policies will, will get some sort of pretty, I imagine, a pretty thorough review by the incoming government. So mm. they may be looking at that, those sorts of aspects. So when the government set the, or the previous government set the 24 to 47% targets, did they take into account the warming impact of those targets? They just they just took them straight from the straight from the IPCC. Yeah. 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 So, well, not really. No, I wouldn't think so. It was, it was, and I say incorrectly. Um, it was directly counter to the uh, caveat that the IPCC put on uh, on those ranges. Would reducing the 2050 methane targets have an impact on New Zealand's international obligations? Uh, you, what do you mean by reducing? You mean making softer or? Yes. Well, they're obli- no. I wouldn't. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you, you, what you're required to do under the Paris Agreement is to. You know, put your most ambitious, put your best foot forward, put mm. your most ambitious uh, um, way forward. And um, you, I mean, you, if you decided for, if you decided that you you were going to, um, you know, reduce. Well, we haven't we haven't got we haven't got firm methane targets yet. But if you decided you're going to, just, oh, we'll do we'll do we don't need to do nearly that much. You'd have to explain yourself. And the question is, you'd have to you'd have to demonstrate that New Zealand is not is still shouldering its fair share. Now, one very peculiar aspect of New Zealand policy, which was never made clear by those providing advice to government, is that this 50% reduction by 2030 looks impossibly uh, onerous for the economy, and it looks to severely prejudice our route through to net zero by 2050. In a nutshell, it's because take the Commission's recommendations on our domestic targets. So they reckon that the domestic target they recommended, going beyond that, would cause severe economic and social inequalities or disruption, especially to Māori. But that target, which we now have in our emissions reductions plan, is only one-third, approximately, of that international um, pledge. So we are going to have to look abroad if we continue if we keep that up to international carbon markets, which don't exist actually as yet. So they're scrambling around looking, uh, talking with countries around the Asia-Pacific region to see if we can do some bilateral deals to um to set up carbon market with them. Um no other country on the planet is doing anything like that. Mm. So that should have raised a severe, you know, alarm bells. But um, it didn't because what the government was told was, oh, this is quite normal. Other countries are doing this at scale. Um, the only other country doing anything significant, well, at that, what you might call at scale, is Switzerland. And they have got their domestic target, which they put in as their uh, NDC. And they say, well, we, you know, we, we want to do more. So we'll add 25%. And that's what we'll use international markets for. Most other countries, including our main trading partners, have just have done the most that they could do domestically. And they put that in as their target. US, uh, EU, UK, um, Australia. UK and Australia say they might make some use of carbon markets, but only you know, it'll be at the margins to, to meet their what is a domestic target. So that's the very unusual position that New Zealand's in. There's a history to that, and it, uh, I, uh, Dave Frame, who's professor at uh, Canterbury, and I have done a bit of a forensic analysis on that, and we've sort of shown how we've got there, but we are in that rather very awkward position. And if we were to 
meet that bill, which the commission has estimated it up to around up to around thirty billion. That's the direct cost of purchasing plus the um, the multiplier, because all that money, you know, none, of, not a cent of that money is going to be spent on on jobs, on clean energy transitions, on anything in New Zealand. Um, that's that's the hit to the economy. If anybody thinks that, um, you know, even 20, 20 billion is going to be uh, found miraculously by the incoming government before twenty thirty, I think they're they're living in a dream world. So I think there's some reckoning going to have to be had over that. But both political part, both major political parties were very quiet about that mm. during the election campaign. I noticed focused on the twenty fifty, and I think I think correctly, but they were very. Um, Quiet. What I, what Dave and I described as some uh, soft shoe shuffling went on when they were questioned about this. But um, mm. you know, it's, it's become more known. But now the public is aware of that issue lying over us. Uh, what people probably are not aware of is that that pledge that we made is not actually a legally binding pledge, and that was made very clear in the Paris Agreement that the big countries are not prepared to take on legally binding targets. So. Um, you have to do, you no, know, it has to be ambitious, has to be a fair share, uh, but it is not actually internationally legally binding. Mm. So a lot of work, I think, will have to be done over the next year or so by the new government just to do some rethinking about all this. So how do you think the new government can better communicate the science and policy implications of agriculture's impact on warming to the general public? Well, I think I would say... I mean, I do have this view. I've just said I think that the climate policy has been done in something somewhat of a of a bubble, and the bubble consists of those uh, key uh, officials, if you like, uh, who and it's really quite. A, we're, we're a small country, so there's a very small cohort of experts. But um, those are advising the Commission, those advising MFE. They've been the main point of resistance, really, to the greater, better understanding of the gases has actually come from, I think, those who have very strong convictions, particularly about what should happen to agriculture. And same in, in Europe, they seem to think that it's, you know, New Zealand looking for free ride, which is which, which is um, complete nonsense. So I, I think that a, a new, the new government may be more um, open to, to having that um, discussion more, more publicly. I mean, I'll give you an example. We had, we had Miles, oh, this is, a few years ago, and I just mm. think it might have been about 2016. First time he came out to New Zealand to talk about um, methane, and he was giving he was down to give a lecture at Victoria University. And I had we had one or two people I won't say who from within the bubble who were complaining about Victoria University allowing Miles Allen to speak. Um, and I, was, I think it, it seemed to be an attempt to cancel him on the grounds that we're told that he was peddling dangerous misinformation. Well, it's actually it's peer reviewed science and um mm. the main articles a couple of articles that um we wrote on this for one of the uh, nature journals and that that you can look into your articles and you can see how they're doing in terms of the statistics those those articles are in the 99th particularly the 99th percentile of influence in terms of, you know readership downloads and all that so mm. you know it's there's no questioning of the science what what people have um I think what people have objected to, as, as I said before, it, it's something that's for them, for, for deeply held convictions. And, you know, there's nothing you know, there's nothing wrong with having deeply held convictions about what, what you think should happen. But it's a very inconvenient 
there is very inconvenient truths for some of your most deeply held convictions. So it's a natural, probably a natural reaction to be somewhat resistant to it. But this, the, the momentum is growing. And, and what we have now that we didn't have before is a very um, methane literate farming sector, I think. Mm. Um, and you've, you've got, you, you have a split. I mean, I think that the main organisations, um, if you take, you know, beef and lamb, dairy and seed and the feds, I mean, it was, quite an achievement to, to more or less come together over this. But I think that what the main um, what the main organisations are asking for now is, well, government would please engage with this on, around the warming issue, please. And it's been, at the moment, the government has, you know, up until now, government, the last government has not been prepared to engage fully with the industry on that point. They wanted to stick to the, the way that, you know, the, the GDP 100 thing, which gives you the wrong measure. But I'm quite, I think that probably the, New government will take will take a, another look at that. Mm. Do you think we can achieve or need a bipartisan approach to emissions policy in New Zealand that will ultimately, in my mind, set farmers up for the next one hundred years and give them clarity and certainty? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and that, I think the, you know, the the most I said there was a lot of soft soft shoe shuffling going on. I bet the most helpful thing, the most, single most helpful thing I heard actually during the election campaign was um, was uh, because Luxon's saying this needs to be something like just what you said. Look, we, this needs to be bipartisan, and he's, he's exactly right. I mean, there was a huge achievement by um, Todd Miller um, and James Shaw, who got um, who got the national party. You know, who basically got we do have a bipartisan agreement on the zero carbonate, and that's a huge achievement. They could have got they could have kept something bipartisan, I think, on agriculture. But the when the Hewaka Ekinoa reported. Um, the government decided it didn't want to accept um, all the recommendations and started fiddling with it, and, and it's all got undone, undone since. But that, I think, was a lesson, and now mm. that's taken agriculture backward, definitely taken the certainty on, on, on what we do on methane backward. Uh, it's a lesson that, yes, um, if, unless you have some policy stability on this, New Zealand will be in, in greater and greater difficulties because you know these are long-term investment decisions that are they're affected by what you want to do on its renewable energy, not just farming, but especially like renewable energy. It's that's that's a big one. How far you want to go forward on that? Um, so without that stability, on uh, these are you know these are 20, 30 year investments you're talking about. Uh, without that, with some degree of, of commonality, I see very little chance um, of a, of, a, of a really solid resilient policy to take you through to 2050. Adrian, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, not at all. When this new government gets its feet under the table, we need them to look at the science and we need them to recognise and understand the relationship between agriculture and warming. This is the conversation that needs to be had in order to land on fair, equitable policy for our farming future. More to come on this, but that's all from me this week. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.